you've got your Bibles, would you grab them? And actually head on over to not 1 Corinthians 14, but the book of Acts. And uh, if you're just kind of hopping in with us here, um, we have spent the last 10 months of 2019 in the book of 1 Corinthians and we'll finish out 2019 hanging out in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, so this morning, if you've not tracked along all the way through, it's going to maybe just come out of left field for you. Like, why in the world would it be a good idea to talk about the spiritual gift of tongues and how that has any bearing on today? And what does that have to do with my life? And those are all fair questions. Um, but one of the things that, that we just do here is we just we look through books of the Bible and we aim to understand what was written to those that originally received the letter and how that applies to us today. So if this kind of sounds like it's a, a little bit out in left field, it, it might be. Um, and I'm just going to ask you to kind of bear with us. But these things, as we just think about uh, the the what the scriptures have to say about spiritual gifts, what they are, what they are not. Um, They do matter, and there is some pretty stark distinction between different denominations about these things. And we're not going to step into all of that here this morning. Um, But what it is that we've been doing is we've been thinking about spiritual gifts. And last week as we began 1 Corinthians 14, Paul transitions from talking about love to talking about the use of a tongue, which he defines as a mysterious utterance. He tells us it's speaking to God, not to people. It's, 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 it's an intelligible noise. It builds up the person, not the church. And then he, beginning in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 14, contrasts that with tongues. And I think one of the keys to understanding the chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 is to see that there's a, a distinction between Paul's use of the singular word tongue and the plural. So your Bibles are going to probably say a tongue and tongues. And that's how those translators are trying to just identify this distinction that exists. Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul mentions tongues in every one of those chapters, and he never defines it. He just mentions it. And it's, it's as if the Corinthian church knew exactly what he meant, and we aren't them, and so we got to figure out perhaps what he meant. And I would submit to you, and this is why we're going to Acts, chapter 2 specifically, is that the book of Acts gives us the definition of tongues. Not specifically the spiritual gift of tongues, but what are tongues? And how are they different than a tongue? As Paul gives that description in chapter 14. So we are going to very, very quickly work ourselves through these three texts, and then we're going to get to 1 Corinthians and try to work ourselves through a fourth text as well. So we got some heavy lifting to do this morning, but I think the contrast that we'll see will help give us some clarity about what Paul's talking about, and it'll help us make sense of the illustrations, the analogies, the application, the commands that he gives in 14. So before we go any further, would you pray with me? And then we'll hop into Acts 
to you. Well, Jesus, we want to make sense of your word. And we want to understand it. We want to, we want to see it. We want to believe it. We want to obey it. And so would you just come and help us? Would your, would your spirit give us clarity? Would you guard my words from error? And help us to think well. Let me pray this in your good name. Amen. Well, maybe to just very, very quickly recap. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul defines a tongue as speaking to God in a way that nobody else understands. So it's a mystery, and the value that comes from it is the person speaking is built up. Now that in and of itself gets distinguished from a spiritual gift, because spiritual gifts are for the common good. They're for the building up of the body. And so when Paul says that speaking in a tongue only builds up the one speaking, we should immediately be thinking, okay, if there, there's something different happening here. Because gifts, generally speaking, build up the body. Now he's going to work that out more through chapter 14. But what I want us to see in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19 is where we see tongues on display and the definition given. Now in Acts 2 is where Luke's going to give us the definition. But Acts 10 and Acts 19 are also two passages where tongues show up. And our question when we get to those texts is just to ask ourselves, does Luke give us a different definition? And is our understanding of what Luke gave us in chapter 2 at all changed by what he uses and what he says in 10 and 19? Let's look at 2, specifically verse 3, and then we'll just kind of work our way through. And divided tongues... As of fire appeared to them on, and rested on each one of them. This is the upper room. The them is 120 people, both men and women, that were gathered together. The Holy Spirit descends in an incredibly unique way. They see this image of a tongue, the body part, on fire and it descends on them. And then in verse 4, Luke gives us his first definition. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The first thing that we need to see from verse 4 that is incredibly helpful is that this was an act of speaking. The Holy Spirit came in an incredibly unique way. He filled them and they began speaking as he gave them utterance. Go to verse 5. Now there dwelling in Jerusalem were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, they came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. We get another aspect to this definition that takes place. So just imagine the scene for a minute. There's 120 people. They're in the upper room. Holy Spirit comes. They begin speaking in other tongues. Not even defined what it is yet, but where they're speaking and then they spill out of this room and all of these Jews that were gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost 
are bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That word language that Luke uses is where we get our English word dialect from. So there's just a very clear indicator that they are speaking known languages. There's bewilderment that takes place. In verse 7, they were amazed, astonished, saying, Are these not, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hear in his own native language? They're astonished because those from Galilee were not known as well-educated people. We learn that from Acts chapter 4. So these, these probably just poor working class, blue-collar people, fishermen, are speaking in these languages that bewilders, astonish, and amazes all of these people from all over the globe, we could say, because they're hearing them talk in their own language. Luke continues, verse 9 and 10, he lists out the countries that they came from, and then in verse 11, he tells us both Jews... Or I'm sorry, go, go towards the middle of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So one last time, Luke tells us that these disciples, the 120 that were gathered, men and women collectively, were speaking known languages unknown to them that were heard by all of these other people that had gathered from around the world to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. We see then, if we just take the definition from Acts 2, tongues were spoken to people. There's a direct contrast between that and a tongue, which Paul tells us is just spoken to God. We see tongues can be understood by other, which is a direct contrast to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, that a tongue, nobody understands. And I think we see from Acts 2 that known languages are what was spoken. That shows up at least two times, if not three times, where we have Luke telling us that it was their dialect, their native dialect that was being spoken. So the definition for tongues that we get from Acts 2 is that these are known languages that were unknown by the ones speaking but were understandable by those that were hearing. So this was a miracle of speaking. This was not a miracle of hearing. The Holy Spirit came upon believers, filled them in a special way for this special moment in the history and the birth of the church to speak and tell of the mighty works of God. And Peter then stands up and says, hey, they're not drunk like you suspect. Let me tell you what's happening here. He quotes from Joel 2. We get to the end of Acts 2 and the people are like, what do we do to respond? And Peter says, repent. Be baptized, believe in Jesus, and you'll get the Holy Spirit just as they have. Now, what's interesting is that there's no record that 
the 3,000 people saved that day spoke in tongues. The only record we have is from the 120. But the definition we're given for tongues is that it was spoken to people. It was understood by people because it was known languages. And there's a contrast to a tongue. So let's then go ahead to Acts chapter 10. The scene there is one of Jewish believers and Gentile unbelievers. Now this is not the first Gentile believer or unbeliever to confess Christ. That happened in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. But what's distinct when what's happening in Acts 10 is that you have Peter as the leader of the early church gathered together with other Jews who were at Pentecost and spoke in the known languages on that day in the presence of Gentiles confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. What matters about Acts 10 is that there's an ethnic transition that has taken place in the early church. God very clearly is making it known that his gospel is not just for Jews, but for those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And so in verse 44, when Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcision party, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Notice their amazement is that Gentiles would receive the Holy Spirit For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Well, then they got baptized. The ethnic transition that takes place in Acts 10 in the early church is of tremendous significance. And the fact that the Holy Spirit came and evidenced his presence in those Gentile believers through tongues was also significant because it very clearly revealed to the believers that had been in the upper room and at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came on us in the exact way he did on them. Now here we're not told the number of people that spoke in these tongues, but in chapter 11, if you flip a page... Peter's giving his report to the church leaders. Peter's telling them what took place. Verse 16, I remember the word of the Lord. What Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who is I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard, this is the church, these, these, these Jewish elders, leaders in the early church, they fell silent and they glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also has God granted repentance that leads to life. In Acts 10, the presence of tongues when these Gentiles confessed Jesus Christ as Lord was not 
a moment to signify that this should accompany every salvation experience for the rest of the church's history, but rather that Gentiles could be saved just like Jews. Tremendous significance in seeing the ethnic transition that's taking place, but we're not given a different definition of tongues. In fact, those Jewish believers who were with Peter concluded they're doing exactly what we did. And they did, from Acts 2, spoke in known languages. So let's go to Acts 19. Acts 19 gives us even less information about what's going on, even less information about these tongues. Luke just tells us they happen. Like Acts 10, where there was a transition taking place, Acts 19 is also a transition. The transition in Acts 19 is not ethnic, it's what I'll call covenantal. That's just a fancy word to say, it's the transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John the Baptist came and he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came baptizing people, telling them to look forward to the one who was going to come. And he even told them who it was. Behold the man of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus gets baptized. But there was a transition to take place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The believers in Acts 19, or these, these disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19, hadn't heard the rest of the story. Not exactly told how or why, but we're told they hadn't heard the rest of the story. And so Paul is there now, and he asks them, did you receive, verse 2, the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what baptism were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about 12 men in all. There was a covenantal transition that took place and was illustrated here. Between the Old Testament, the ministry of John the Baptist, which was real, but it was a foretelling ministry. It's a prophetic ministry, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the ministry now that Jesus came and the gift of the Holy Spirit that was to come. Here, we're told the only individual speaking numbered about 12 men in all. Again, there's significance there because there's not any report that all of Ephesus spoke in tongues. And so one of the things we just got to just be aware of is that the, the claim that tongues should always accompany a salvation experience is one that doesn't have a lot of roots in the scriptures. We're not given the number of people in Acts 10 that spoke in tongues. Acts 2, there's 120. Acts 19, there are 12, so we're up to 132. If you kind of roughly ballpark, maybe Peter's group, Cornelius's group at 10 apiece, you're looking at maybe 150 people. But see, what I think is more significant about the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in indicating salvation is not the presence of tongues, but what the city of Ephesus did 
And Paul and Luke give us a report of that. The gospel is just wildly spreading in Ephesus. And in verse 18, we're told, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What's most significant about what takes place in Ephesus as the gospel goes forward is not the 12 men who spoke in tongues. It's the city who came in confession and repentance. And so just take all of the garbage that I've had in my house. And they just burned it. It's far more significant than the 12 people that spoke in tongues. But there is this record here. And even in that moment, we're not given a different definition of what takes place. I think from Acts 2, we can see this definition hold. Tongues were known languages that were unknown to the speaker. They're understood by the people hearing them. And they communicate something. So it's to 1 Corinthians 14 that I think we can take that definition. So if you go there, we're going to look at verses 6 to 19 together this morning. I'm going to try to move a little quickly through it. Paul's going to give some illustrations and some analogies that are going to help us unpack what he's saying. But at its root, here's the big idea that I just don't want any of you to miss. Paul wants whatever is said to be understood or understandable and comprehensible. That's where he places all of the emphasis. I want you guys to understand what I have to say. I want you to understand what each other have to say. That's where the emphasis gets placed. And so he leads off in verse 6 with this hypothetical question that is geared around this idea of understanding. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, so that's known languages, unknown to the speaker, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? See, the emphasis in this hypothetical question is on understanding. Information is communicated. And he lists four different categories of information that we're not going to try to closely or, or, or specifically give definition to. They're very interrelated. And Paul's emphasis is on his words, even if he doesn't know them, being words that are understood. Being words that can be comprehended. And so even if he comes into their presence and speaks a language that he doesn't know, so this is Greece, maybe he speaks Italian. Paul probably actually spoke Italian. This may be a bad example because he spent a lot of time in Rome. Um, he speaks a language he doesn't understand. If they can't understand him, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how spectacular everybody thinks that moment is because there's no information understood. There's no comprehension gained. They're not actually learning more about God and the scriptures and who Jesus is. And he then, with three different analogies, gives us that big idea. So go to verse 7. The first analogy that he gives us is that even lifeless instruments 
such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes. Or if they do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? The first analogy that he gives is the analogy of an instrument. He says the flute and the harp. There's a picture there of the Maryland Orchestra from the Maryland Theater. The idea is this. Those people are not just randomly blowing in their instruments or drawing the bows across the strings of their stringed instruments willy-nilly. There's actually a precision that's at work. And if you go and listen to orchestras and symphonies, it's an amazing amount of precision. But even if these instruments, such as the flute or the harp, don't give distinct notes, how... Will anyone know what is played? Because the whole point of an instrument is to be able to play with distinction. It's to be able to go and play an E flat when the music tells you to play an E flat. Some of us who have children that have brought home instruments from band class might have experienced some of this as you're learning or your child is learning to play the instruments. When I was learning to play the tenor saxophone, my, one of my favorite things to do was just to blow the thing and make it sound like a foghorn from a ship. It was awesome. Our band director here is shaking his head in disapproval. There is no distinct sound that's coming out of that. There's no benefit to the band. If I would have done that in my band class, the teacher would have very quickly said, Clothier, don't do that kind of stuff. Because those notes needed to be distinct. Because when they're distinct, when they're understandable, when there's comprehension, they fit and they benefit. He continues, he gives a second analogy in verse 8. If a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? The idea here is the presence of musical instruments for the instruction and command of armies. All right, we live in a day and age when armies and military personnel have walkie-talkies. Commands or instructions come about a little bit differently than they did before that technology advanced. But there you've got some pictures from Colonial Williamsburg and the Revolutionary War area where the fife and the drum was used to give instructions for what the army was to do. There are drum cadences to tell the army to turn left. There are drum cadences to tell the army to go get a drink of water. There are drum cadences and there are noises and sounds to be played on the fife to give them instructions. And as I was reading this past week about those two instruments specifically in the Revolutionary War period, they were used because the fife as a high-pitched instrument could cut through the noise of battle and be heard over everything. And the drum as a low-register instrument could then carry its bass notes through the firing, the shouting, whatever it might be. There's a bugle in the middle of it. I stumbled on the Army's website this past week and found a bunch of different bugle tunes. And I sent them to Kevin and I said, hey, was this actually used when you were in the military? And there were, there were certain ones that were. And I thought about playing this morning the one that was uh, the call to go eat. And I just kind of wanted to do it because I wanted to see if him and Justin would get hungry when it happened. 
like Pavlo's dogs, where like the sound just creates the response involuntarily in you. But let's not miss the point. There's a reason why that, spo- that, that sound could create that response. It's because that particular bugle tone communicated information. And it said, go eat. Or there's other tones that says, go fight. Pull back. Stand and salute the flag. It's a whole host of them. But what is true about all of this in this second analogy that Paul gives is that these things communicated information. And so if the bugle doesn't communicate information, how's anybody going to know when to fight? Just think of the disorganization that would occur on a battlefield if the army didn't either know what to listen for or the bugle player didn't play what they should be listening for. It'd be chaos. It's probably the difference between life and death. Paul applies this in verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue, there he's just talking about the body part. It's the only place in chapter 14 where the body part is referenced. You utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? You'll just be speaking to the air. And it follows the definition that he gave in verses 1 to 4 about a tongue being mysterious utterances that are spoken to God and not understood by anybody else. He's contrasting here this tongue, these mysterious utterances with known languages unknown to the speaker that communicate information to people. He gives a third analogy beginning in verse 10. This one's the closest analogy to what is actually at stake in the issue There he says, there's doubtless many different languages in the world. None is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be foreigner to the speaker. And the speaker of foreigner, to me, that word foreigner is where we get our English word barbarian from. Just just completely out of your element is the idea. And what he's just saying is, just think how you guys communicate to each other now. And I've given you the example of Carrie and I in China the last couple weeks and just different things and, and just kind of what, what happened there. And I didn't tell you this story, but there was a, a moment right after we first got Tobin that we were followed. Some people were kind of looking at us when we were in a restaurant. We were a little uncomfortable with it. We got up and walked and they followed us out and we kind of took a right. And at one point I saw the, this, the, the, the guy, I don't know if he was a dad or not, kind of walk up a staircase to like kind of take an overwatch position on us. And I just said, all right, sweetie, let's go. And we, we took it to kind of a hard left down a flight of stairs into an underground shopping mall, which is just an amazing experience to be a part of. Um, and, and we ended up losing him. And we got back to our hotel and we never saw him again. And it was just kind of one of those things where like, we're just going to stay here behind a locked door for a little while. Um, but once I got internet access in the hotel again, I got on Google Translate and I translated help. These people are following me from English to Chinese. And Google Translate allows you to not just like speak it, but you can actually get it written out. And so I did that feature and then I screenshotted it. So that if it happened again, I could go up to the one of many police officers there and just show him my phone that just says help. 
we're being followed by somebody. We don't know what's going on. Language communicates information. When I was in China, I was a foreigner. And I had to leverage just the tools available to be able to communicate. And Paul's saying just that. The differences between languages, you may not know what's being said, but what's being said communicates information. Again, the emphasis is on understanding. It's on comprehension. And so in verse 12 then, he applies this again. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That word strive means to devote serious effort to. The word excel means to have an overabundance of. So the command for you and I who want to see the Spirit at work, who want the Spirit to be a part of our gatherings and in our midst and free to do whatever he needs to do because he knows way better than we do what needs to take place when we gather together. The, the, the prayer, the striving is that we place an emphasis on building up the body. That's where we focus our attention. We don't focus our attention on things that don't build up the body. So, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, A tongue does not build up the body. It only builds up the person. But he's unwilling to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because there is this spiritual gift of tongues. There are these mysterious utterances. But then there's this gift of speaking in known languages that you've never studied before that God can use and does use. And that leads us... To 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13, where then he gives a command. And the command that he gives there is for the one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. The command there that's given is that there should be understanding, there should be comprehension. And I think Paul's being a little ironic with his language here. Because if we just kind of take what we've seen defined for us and put them into that verse, that the one who speaks in mysterious utterances should pray for the power to interpret or to have those utterances understood. And here's where I think he's being ironic. Is that to pray with a specific request is to understand what your prayer is. And so by very definition, your prayer is not therein a mysterious utterance it can be understood and here's what Paul's saying the one who finds himself speaking in mysterious utterances should speak in plain words that he understands and asks God to keep all of his language understandable see the irony there that he's doing because the emphasis is on understanding it's on communication, and then he further applies this and explains it in verses 14 to 17. For if I pray in a tongue, a mysterious utterance, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The word unfruitful there just means useless, unproductive. 
what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. Also, I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind also. What Paul is saying there in explaining this is that he wants his mind engaged. And to utter mysterious utterances is to not have your mind engaged because you don't understand what's being said as he defined that in verse 2. He wants his mind engaged. Pray in such a way that there would be understanding and comprehension. So we need to be careful to not conclude that the spirit only desires to connect with our spirits or souls and therefore just then disengage our minds when he's at work. The spirit's work's actually a work of transforming our minds. Paul tells us that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. The Spirit's work is a work of mind transformation. So we're not to ever sacrifice biblically informed and Christ-centered thoughts for emotional experiences. In this way, we're, suppo- we're supposed to be mindful and spirit-filled. Paul wants our minds engaged. Now, let's just kind of have some balance here. It's not that spirit-filled Christians have to demand a rational explanation for everything they do. But what I am saying is that we don't check our minds out. We don't lay aside thought. We don't lay aside what God has given clarity in for emotional experiences. Let me try to illustrate that big idea for you because I think there's significance there. This was several years ago. I don't know, seven, eight years ago. We were in Indiana at the time. Every Tuesday I went with my boss and another employee at our church to Pizza Hut had the same waitress every Tuesday. We'd walk in, we would just walk right to our booth, she would show up with our drinks, we would just go to the buffet, we would do that every Tuesday. We'd spend time talking to her, hey Sarah, how can we pray for you? She would tell us things. We just built this relationship with this woman over time. And for whatever reason, on this particular day, I decided to swing by the bank, which was on the way to Pizza Hut, but I stopped at the bank and I withdrew some money. And I remember clearly I withdrew three $100 bills. Now, it was odd because um, that was never what we withdrew. It wasn't the denomination we withdrew money in, and it was way more than what we ever withdrew from our bank account. And I just kind of, I don't know what I was thinking, quite frankly, but it happened, and we get there, and we're talking to Sarah, and she's just, she's just telling us she's in a hard spot. And there's some bills coming due, and just... That she doesn't know how she's going to pay for them, and just, just kind of all of that. And, and I, I, look, I looked at my guys, and I looked at her, and I go, you know what? You're not going to believe this, but like, I just went to the bank, and I withdrew money that I can't actually tell you why. It might have made sense to me when I was at the window, but it doesn't make sense to me now, and I feel like the Holy Spirit's just telling me to give this to you. I think I gave her a couple hundred of the 300 that I had. 
And then I called Carrie after lunch, and I was like, hey, guess what I did? And we've got this thing, and we've had it for a long time, that we, there's just permission for either one of us to be generous however the Spirit leads, and we just let each other know when it happens, what happened. So here's what I mean by that, okay? My mind was fully engaged, but I can't give you a rational explanation as to why I took $300 out of the bank. It wasn't the amount normally withdrawn. It wasn't even the, with the, the denominations we normally withdrew money for. I can't explain to you rationally in a logical way why that made sense, but my mind was engaged, and I sought to be obedient to the Spirit. Paul goes on to say, look, I'm going to sing, and I'm going to sing in my spirit and in my mind as well. We need to sing biblically rich songs that focus our attention on the scriptures, not just an emotional experience. Back in the early 2000s, this was one of the, the main critiques by the generation at that point that was probably like 45 to 55, so it was about 20 years ago. This was one of the main critiques of that particular generation of the modern worship movement. They, they called them 7-Eleven songs. That the song just has seven words in it. We sing it 11 times until somebody feels something, and then we just move on to the next song. There was a lot of legitimacy to those critiques. And if you look at some of the music that came out in those early 2000 years when the modern worship movement was kind of gaining some more national traction, there was a lot of stuff that we're not going to sing in church anymore because it just wasn't biblically rich and there's not anything wrong with feeling we don't ever sacrifice the feeling for God's word and I'm convinced God's never going to ask us to check out our minds in obedience to him we may not make sense of it. We may not understand it. It might be like, a, Lord, I don't know what it is that I'm called to do right now, but you're just clearly telling me to give this waitress a couple hundred bucks or put gas in the tank of that person, and I don't get it, but I'm going to obey it. And it's not that we check our minds out. It's that we seek to obey the Spirit. That's Paul's point here. And he does so, and he makes that point in regards to mysterious utterances. Language should be understood. And it doesn't even matter how great the experience is. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you've said? It doesn't matter how great your personal experience is, when you're in the gathered body of believers, your language needs to be understandable so that they can join with you. You may be, verse 17, giving thanks well enough. The other person's not being built up. They're not being built up because they don't understand. The emphasis again on understanding, on comprehension. But in verse 18 and 19, we get the balance here where Paul's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I thank God that I speak in tongues. Known languages unknown to me more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others 
than 10,000 words in a tongue. I'd rather have five words that can be understood than a myriad. That's the word there. It's myrios. It's where we get our English word myriad from. A myriad of words that nobody has an idea what is being said. Now the word myriad in the Greek language, or myrios in the Greek language, it was the, it was the only word they had for the highest number that they had and understood. So 10,000 was the number, and that's why it gets translated that way. But the word communicates that idea of the highest known number. For us, a transliteration there would be a little bit more closely related to trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. I'm not sure I can go higher than that at the moment. Did you see Paul's point? It doesn't matter how many words are spoken in a mysterious utterance, in an intelligible tongue. Give me five that'll build up the church. And I'll take those. Because when you and I gather, we're not the point. I'm not the point. You're the point. And in every one of those examples, there's community on display. The flute and the harp do not play alone. They're a part of a symphony. The bugle sounds out in the company of soldiers on the battlefield. Languages are spoken between individuals. Even Paul's explanation that you may be giving thanks well enough, but the person beside you, they're not built up because they don't know what you've said. Community. And here's one of these kind of backwards moments in the kingdom of God that we see. And it's along the lines of when Jesus said things like, the humble shall be exalted, the last shall be first. It's better to give than to receive. What Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 14 is that our striving, what we're going to put all of our energy to, is to have an overflowing abundance of Holy Spirit-empowered impact in other people. That when we come, we come not asking, how am I going to be encouraged this morning? But who do I get to encourage? Who do I get to be a part of building up? How do I get to use my gift to build up that person or that class or those people. But like all of these other things, the last shall be first. It's better to give than to receive. Even his instructions in marriage. Invariably what happens is the focus shifts and I worry more about you that I find myself actually built up along the way. That what I need, I'm given by somebody else who's coming to give focus and encouragement and a building up. See, these things, gifts, they're not for us. They're given to us for others. Paul's trying to rein this Corinthian church back in to say, look, you guys have, you guys have placed a high degree of emphasis on, on the, the, the spectacular, the, the, the 
unintelligible, what you can't explain, and that might be all well and good, but it's not actually benefiting you. So strive for what will benefit. Strive for what will build up. Strive for what's going to make an impact for Christ in the life of somebody that you're gathered together with. Because your gift has been given to you for other people. Let's pray and we'll get you out of here. God, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Help us to have a focus and an emphasis on building up. Give us a deep love and desire and care for one another that we would strive to excel in building up. That as we gather together, we would find ourselves focusing energy and effort on those we can encourage. God, help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name.